HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. It's the final stretch of 2022, and HRN needs your help. Become an HRN member with a donation of any amount at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's Tuesday, December 6, 2022. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here on Heritage Radio Network. So uh, we've got another Colorado show with our friends uh, from the Western Slope out there. Um, so we're going to go around the room and introduce each other. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host of Beer Sessions Radio. Em? Hi, everyone. I'm Emily Hutto. I'm the founder at Radcraft. Great. And Mark? And I'm Mark Youngquist, uh, founder and owner of Dolores River Brewery. All right, guys. Um, and this is our second week in a row. And uh, last week we were in Denver talking with Lone Star and Resolute. And this week, um, you're going to tell me about your coloring book and a little bit more about Rag Craft. Because I know that we've worked together on and off the last couple of years. I met you through the Craft, Craft Malsters Guild. Looking forward to meeting you at the Craft Malt Conference. Um, March 16th to 18th in Portland, Maine. Um, but this is a pretty neat project, and it, I think it sheds a lot of light on uh, some of the clients you have. And, uh, you know, just tell us a little bit about what Ragcraft Beer is and, um, you know, some of the – I know we've already talked with Scott Brewing last year. Um, but let's let's hear about more about you and Ragcraft Beer. Well, thank you so much for having me back on the show. I just can't get enough. <laughs> and you've been really gracious about having many of our Radcraft partners on the show, which is amazing. Radcraft over the weekend actually just turned 10. This little napkin idea that I had is has really uh, formulated over the years or, or materialized, I should say. Um, the Radcraft story is really my story. I am a passionate home brewer who got really excited about home brewing when I was studying journalism in college. And when I graduated, I was really fortunate to be able to pursue my freelance journalism and fermentation pursuits um, alongside one another. I wrote for a variety of beer publications when I was living in the Pacific Northwest. And long story short, moved home to Colorado, where I'm originally from, to write a book about craft beer in this state. It's called Colorado's Top Brewers, and it pairs up brewers and chefs for recipes that you can make at home as food and beer pairings. And we selectively chose breweries from all over Colorado that I thought helped tell the story of, of the beer scene. Um, that said, I um, have since done a lot more travel all over the state and would probably make a lot of different choices. Um, or I should just say ask for more of a page count because this is such a big story and such a big beer state. But I digress. Um, it was during the process of writing that book that I really built my Rolodex of craft breweries, specifically in Colorado. And uh, many of those breweries actually invited me to come on board and help them in a freelance capacity doing a variety of marketing projects. 
and communication tasks for them. So Radcraft started as honestly a vessel to filter some of that freelance for me. And it wasn't until a couple of years in that I decided I would quit my day job, which was still beer writing and working at breweries, to go all in to create, or I should say, formulize a communications company specific to the needs of brewers and distillers. Um, Very quickly along my journey, I got excited about the ingredient side of all of this wonderful liquid that I get to support. And um, as a result, my company has become largely focused on the craft malt scene as well. Thanks so much for the shout out around the, the craft malt conference that's coming up next year. No, it, it's exciting. I think right now craft malt is something that, that makes me more and more interested in in craft beer, you know, especially with so many different beverages you can drink. I'm um, really looking forward to that conference. And Mark, like a little intro with you. I mean, you, you're, you're, I don't want to use the word legend, but you're definitely an industry, uh, you know, professional. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I did, I did go pro some time ago. And so I guess you could say, um, I've had some, I'm, I'm well seasoned. I'm, I consider myself a seasoned veteran, uh, a friend of mine and of mine and I once had a discussion and I think we'd both been in the business about 20 years or so. And, um, his name was Tom Dargan. He was a brewer at the original wine coop brewery and subsequently, um, multiple breweries after that. Uh, he, uh, we were discussing our, all the lessons that we'd learned over the course of years. And one of the most profound that came out of our, our talk was that the longer we're do, the longer we do this, the more we realize that we really have no idea what we're doing. We're just (laughs) in the process of uh, creation as it were very different from when I started in the business, my early twenties and, and uh, my mid twenties, I really felt like I had the tiger by the tail and uh, was quite the expert. Um, and then at this point, I realized that uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah. Well, you know, Mark, it sounds like your your career is also the the story of craft beer in Colorado. Um, just, you know, take us through the first couple of places you worked. I know you've been brewing since the 90s, right? Since the 80s, uh, I started uh, brewing at Bridgeport in Portland, Oregon. It was Columbia River Brewery. Um, and for your listeners there, may be considered one of the first uh, of the new age uh, IPA brewers. Um, They started the the Bridgeport IPA was a classic example of an early West Coast IPA. Um, Unfortunately, the brewery has succumbed to uh, the the whims and novelty of the, the industry. And after nearly 30 35 years of brewing. They closed their doors a couple of years ago. Um, it's a common story and uh, a shame in my opinion, but it is not, it is the nature of how business cycles work. Um, I, I worked there until 19, early 1990 when I moved back to Colorado um, and I approached John Hickenlooper and Russ Shearer of the wine coop who had uh, just opened the wine coop the year before. And, uh, Asked them if we if they'd be interested in uh, opening uh, a second location or another brew pub up in Boulder. I figured that was probably the next logical place to go. The Brewers Association was up there, and it was a college town, and it seemed like a good fit. Um, that uh, partnership didn't work out, but I did uh, find another uh, potential partner up there, and we opened the Walnut Brewery in uh, late 1990. Uh, it was a brew pub. And uh, it it proved quite successful. Our uh, second week of operation, we decided we needed more tanks than we had, and uh, as is the age-old story. Um, and so we expanded the facility, and it wasn't a year later that the uh, Boulder Brewery was uh, nearing uh, a desperate uh, station, I guess, a desperate place where they were uh, actually in receivership to their debtors. Um, and my partners, my financial partners especially, were excited about the prospect of taking over the Boulder Brewery and, and reopening that. Where it, it hadn't technically closed, but um, 
they were living on very borrowed time. Um, and so we we bought the Boulder Brewery out of receivership and reformulated uh, the recipes and redirected the business in 1991. And in uh, late 1991, we, we uh, built the uh, Rock Bottom Brewery in downtown Denver, which was a proverbial ghost town at that point in the 16th Street Mall. But uh, that also proved to be quite, uh, quite popular, and it spawned the, the Rock Bottom Breweries, which partnered with Old Chicago's, um, which is maybe more of a, a common or a household name around the country. It's a multi-tap and pizza kind of joint that, uh, that had already uh, proven successful throughout Colorado and had been expanding aggressively through two other states. So that was, uh, that was kind of my basic introduction or my, my, the early years of my brewing career was uh, pr predominantly there in Denver, Boulder area. Wow, you really, uh, <laughs> that's about five shows right there, Mark. Um, uh, how about this? Highlight of that of that journey that you took. I mean, you obviously scaled up pretty fast when you, you know, went from the Walnut Brewery to being part of the team that took over Boulder to, you know, Rock Bottom. I mean, what were you doing? You know, were you pulling your hair out? I mean... <laughs> Were you in all these locations, uh, and, how, and how, how did it like affect your kind of growth in the industry? Well, <clears throat> Jimmy, it was unprecedented, right? So when I started at Bridgeport in the early days, we were just trying to get people to try the beer. There was no craft beer market. Um, there were no, there was no uh, yeast proprietors. We got our yeast and at the Walnut, the same from the National yeast collections in Norwich, England, and they sent us a slant in a test tube. That was how we got it. Wow. Um, there were no equipment manufacturers, no distributors. Uh, Charlie Finkel up in Seattle was uh, just beginning with Mershon Duvin to import uh, Sam Smith's. And uh, and that, that was helpful, but I mean, there were very few microbreweries out there. So um, you can imagine even a few years later, it was such a novelty and a lot of people turned up their nose at the prospect of a craft beer. For one thing, uh, it was difficult quality control in terms of uh, producing crystal clear product uh, was very challenging with the, with the uh, technology we had at hand back then. So we we're trying to convince people and a lot of times that meant um, creating beers that uh, were small steps, uh, introductions, as it were, to what we were all about. Um, and the Rock Bottom Brewery was uh, a challenge in a lot of ways. But uh, as the novelty caught on, um, it became obvious that uh, this was, uh, I guess you would say, this was kind of a trend that was going to go all over the country. Um, what's I guess to refer back to your question, um, we had no idea what the hell we were doing. <laughs> to be honest, we were just doing it. Now, it's like I said, you know, the longer I do this, the less I know um, about what the hell I'm doing. I've, and at that point, there was a lot of intention around it, but you know, there was there was no proof. There was nothing to look at. There was no uh, there were no colleagues. Um, to point to when you're opening, we, we were like one of the very first, I believe, that were opening multiple locations. And after the Denver uh, Rock Bottom, which was our second location, we went immediately to Minneapolis and directly after that to Houston, Texas, and then to Seattle and Portland and California. And then it, you know, it started steamrolling after that. So, Mark, back, were they all, were they all brew pubs? They were all brewing or? But they were just top rooms. They were all brew pubs. No, it was my firm belief at that point that um, it, that craft brewing was all about local, right? It was all about um, embracing the local environment, and that meant the beer market. And uh, also, it's like the, the the people who are working there. I wanted to them to have some ownership in terms of their own creativity. And uh, what they were creating would be 
completely unique to the environment and the place where they were. Um, we never we never did any beers that were uh, similar or the same recipes from place to place. There's a recognition that you know on a small scale it's very difficult to replicate a recipe twice um, exactly in the same location, nearly impossible in other locations without <laughs> the yeah right without the ability to blend hundreds of batches together and you know have a team of quality control experts tasting every batch to see their similarities like Budweiser did but I think Coors recognized that it's it's very challenging and that's why they only had one brewery wow that that's really cool about rock bottom i i did not know about it I, you know were there a couple highlights for, from different different locations that stood out in terms of beer or anecdotes I mean, were you traveling a lot? I was traveling incessantly, and that was a lot of fun initially, um, as it can be when you're 26, but as you get older, it starts to wear on you. I guess some of the antidotes that we that uh, came up, one of the first ones that comes to mind was Houston, Texas, and we built this huge, beautiful brewery and pub with it actually had a moat around the outside that ducks swam in and you had to cross this bridge to get uh, <laughs> into the place. Uh, the brew house was showcased in a beautiful timber frame structure with the biggest pieces of glass ever set and glazed in Houston, Texas, which looked really cool at night, but they were awful to work in. If you can imagine a uh, brew house is already a pretty warm place. And then you put it in Houston and then you put it in a greenhouse in Houston. Um, so that was a bit of a learning lesson architecturally. But the biggest lesson we learned there is that people in that period in time, and I'm talking 1992 or three, people in Houston, Texas did not drink draft beer. And that was a shock because I built a small bottling, uh, a bottler, and we were actually spending two days of our production time putting our draft beer into long neck bottles to sell across the bar because people would happily pay the same amount for 12 ounces in a long neck bottle that they would for 16 ounces in a pint glass. It's amazing how different things were back then. I, I, I started in the industry in 1992 and that in New York, that's when Brooklyn brewery was just also starting to, to do imports or craft beers on the side. Um, and of course, things like Sam Smith were, were some of the first things I had. It's quite interesting. I, I didn't serve draft beer back then either myself. So um, it's uh, keep going. This is pretty great. <laughs> I didn't know we were talking about rock bottom, but th th this is uh, craft beer history right here. Right. It was, well, there, there are a lot. And uh, another thing that um, a lesson came back to back, the, this is a first lesson before we went to Houston and realized Texas was uh, an animal that we are not ready to conquer. Although we did build another one in Addison, which is a suburb of Dallas. Um, but before that, we went to Minneapolis and uh, we opened in the winter and it was gangbusters. Um, we were right down on Hennepin next to the State Theater. Uh, you know, Prince's uh, place, the first Ave was just around the corner and it was vibrant, you know, downtown was, being resurrected, so it was um, it was lo a lot like the 16th Street Mall in Denver. It was a kind of a ghost town initially, but it was coming back. There was a resurgence in place, and then summer came, and like we thought in Denver, we had a huge patio, and it was like, this, you know, okay, so this is the warm up act, and then summer came to Minneapolis, and summer in Minneapolis, in downtown Minneapolis, is uh, is a ghost town because everybody goes to the lake. We had no idea of this because we didn't live in Minneapolis. Oh, yeah. So the summertime came and the business completely fell off. And we were struggling to understand exactly the market we were in. So um, a few quick lessons about how varied and different different parts of the country are. Um, and it really struck home in terms of doing a lot more research about what people uh, what people are attracted to, what people enjoy, how to attract people and uh, what we wanted to create in these different environments in different places. And back to Denver, just that's a great intro. Thank you, Mark. What's a, what's, what was it about Denver? You know, what was the magic there? What time of year? Um, 
I'm 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 interested in that that time as well. So, well, is <clears throat> if you can imagine, I believe the wine coop opened in '88, and so when I met uh, John Hickenlooper and Russ Sher for the first time, I'd been brewing professionally for a couple of years, and I I felt like, um, well, I I felt like I knew that what the heck I was doing, which was ridiculous, of course, but uh, <laughs> we did get to the point of discussing least lease deals and uh, location, et cetera, et cetera. And they, um, down in the Lodo area was basically the homeless district of Denver. It was very rough and rugged. Although Union Station, the train station was down there, there was a, a whole lot of reasons not to go to that area of Denver. And so they got, uh, they got a lease deal on a big, beautiful old building that needs a little work, but, you know, industrial style uh, for 25 cents a square foot, which is, you know, absolutely ridiculous now you even consider. But downtown Denver had gone through a big oil boom and bust and boom and bust again. And so a lot of the downtown spaces were not not receptive or conducive to um, to walking retail. Like a, there were a lot of big glass skyscrapers down there that that didn't have the ability to turn into uh, a vibrant downtown space. If you know what I mean, there's like no storefronts. Um, and so it took a long time for that to come around. But in 1990, the 16th Street Mall was uh, a pedestrian mall that was almost entirely vacant from Union Station all the way to the Capitol. Uh, which encompasses, I don't know, 24 blocks or so. Um, a beautiful walking mall, uh, not open to cars of any type. Um, and we were actually striking, we struck a, a lease deal in the Prudential Plaza building. So we were at the very bottom of the Prudential Plaza building, and that's where the name came from, Prudential, get a piece of the rock, rock bottom. I see. So tongue in cheek, a little bit. Um, it, I was not fond of the name, but uh, <laughs> my vote was not enough to overturn <laughs> that. But we, uh, yeah, we we became kind of the anchor there for other other businesses to come in and uh, in place. And it really was a time when the whole downtown Denver area was at the very very early stages of revitalization. Larimer. Street, which is another street down there, had a lot of older businesses that were kind of coming through a second, um, a second wave or a second birthing that um, had had been revitalized. And so downtown Denver was still very depressed, but the lease deals and the real estate were so cheap um, that a lot of people were willing to take chances. And they, uh, if you were in the right place at the right time, they paid off. And that's how Rock Bottom got their start. That's a, a really great intro. And um, I'm going to go back, back to M. So M, uh, you and Ragcraft Co-op. So I didn't know it was a co-op. Um, let's talk a little bit about the spirit of Radcraft and uh, the vibe you got in Durango in the Western Slope. Sure. So, yes, we are a co-op. Um Various companies have options for how they want to participate in our services. And what I've found over the years is that a lot of the bigger breweries, as an example, already have full marketing departments. They might um, already have marketing firms that they're working with and, and a lot of bandwidth. Whereas smaller breweries, sometimes if they're lucky, just have one person to handle those items. And, and so um, when we're talking about, frankly, pricing, there were a couple of years in the beginning of our life that people would come back around to me and say, well, there's just no way that we can afford to hire you as a part or full-time marketing source for us. What can we do? And so we found ourselves kind of playing this Tetris game or this line item game to not just skim down the services, but to really look closely at the company at hand and say, what do you have already? What do you need? And what can we provide for you in the form of filling holes so that more holistically we can, we can meet those needs. Um, also over the course of 
our 10 years, I have built a pretty lengthy Rolodex of what I call vendors who speak beer, which is pretty much any kind of company that a brewery, distillery, or a malt house would need to hire out in order to get their work done. And um, this Tetris game and this building Rolodex became this um, kind of dream of mine to be able to offer to breweries and distilleries and malt houses as it's come to be kind of a snapshot of our products and services or a toolbox, if you will, in which we weren't coming in and doing the work for you, but we were providing resources for the person or people that you had in place to do said marketing work. So whereas we do have plenty of companies that we work with where we're a little more hands-on um, or a little more automatic, as I, as I like to call it, the co-op is a manual version of our products and services that allow companies to empower their sales and marketing people uh, without paying the price of, of what an agency might charge you. Um, so that's, that's the gist on the co-op. And it was to kind of pull it back full circle about five years into the business, my mountain loving heart had had enough of the city and I moved Durango. I moved to Durango where I now call um, home and also Radcraft's world headquarters that's a the tagline I stole from Ska, though. I'll give them the credit. And really, it was um, it was a big move for me because to go remote from what was otherwise considered a, a big time beer town, Denver. Ironically enough, we're we're flashing forward in the history story because Mark is speaking to Denver as this um, very barren community, and and then we flash forward twenty years, and it's a booming beer metropolis. But um, for me to move my business from Denver to the mountains where my heart was was um, absolutely something that I thought was going to be more of a challenge than it was, and that was because I again, to Mark's point, the more I stay in business, the less I know. But I seem to think that being surrounded um, in in a big who's who beer community was was going to best serve me. But it turns out that finding a community that best served my personal life allowed me to really thrive in business. And so I moved to Durango and I continued running my remote company Without a Zoom account, um, just for the record, we didn't have one of those until the pandemic hit um, for a couple years after. Nobody did. <laughs> no, exactly. We just picked up the phone. Um, we didn't even do video chats. We just picked up that damn phone. That's right. Or we're, we're, we were walking around Durango and I run into you. I didn't even need a phone, right? <laughs> exactly. And it is one of those towns of of less degrees of separation. I'm convinced that as soon as you get here, Jimmy, you'll run into somebody you know. Um, <laughs> but that's the, that's really in the story where I meet Mark. So the pandemic hits and I get a sign up for our co-op from the Dolores River Brewery, which I had long admired um, post moving to the Western slope of Colorado, I, I made a point to roll around to all the breweries and check things out. And I always admired his beer because it's clean and bright and dry and um, plays homage to a lot of classic styles. And um, uh, the patio is amazing. And it's just this really wonderful place to be. The environment there is spectacular. And so when I saw Dolores River Brewery come up as one of our new co-op members, I was absolutely thrilled. And um, I'll let Mark speak to this more, but he told me that one of the reasons that he joined was as a means to stay connected with the beer community at large. Because of the rural nature of the places that Mark and I live, a lot of times us beer people really got to stick together, whereas in places like Denver, they're just completely saturated and everywhere. So I was really excited to to have him as part of our tribe, if you will, um, not only because we could provide an extension of the beer community to him, but really because Mark is just this incredibly inspired, I'll call him a legend. You guys might not, and he might, he won't call himself that, but he's one of my <laughs> legends and one of my beer heroes. I, I, I wanted to say legend. 
<laughs> Maybe because I put something like that in my show notes. I think of Will Smith when <laughs> yeah, you say that. Yeah, I feel that 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 we we were gonna ease ease into legend talk with him. <laughs> <laughs> we were just gonna prove that he was a legend by our stories. Um, but but truly, he's this amazing mentor for me. And whereas I know that Dolores Riverbury joined our co-op to to receive a benefit, I'm. I'm pretty confident that it's Radcroft that that really gets the real benefit of working with Mark and just being able to tap into his prowess and his wisdom. He does his work with so much curiosity and humility and and he's really teaching me about how to be a human outside of outside of the beer business. <laughs> All right. That's way too much. That's way too much. Uh, um just give a shout out to a since you made the the coloring book. I just want to hear about a couple of the other folk or co-op members who are featured in the in the coloring book absolutely and i'll give a little bit more background on on how the coloring book came to be with that statement so pandemic hits dolores river brewery joins the co-op among others and many of our members started reaching out to me um, and this is flashback to april of 2020 they're reaching out to me and they're saying, well, what are we going to do? How are we going to gather? Should should we do a Zoom call? And um, my response was a little bit of a like shrug, you know, sure, I can, I can do that. That's, that's one way we can join our community together. So I ended up starting a weekly that turned monthly Zoom chat where I invited all of our co-op members, all of our clients, and really just all of our industry friends who were interested in taking an hour with us and having a beer and, and talking shop about the issues that our community was facing. The topic of each call changed based on what people suggested and what the needs were, but the commonality or the, or the overall theme of these calls was really just join with your community and talk about what's going on in your world, provide resources and, and a little bit of maybe comic relief or um, just community relief. And so along the way, we talked a lot about mental health and one of our, I call them usual suspects, people who showed up to this call a lot said, well, what if we made a coloring book? Because it's really helping me and my mental health right now. And so many folks on the call agreed and, and encouraged us to go forward with it. So we ended up doing just that. I have an amazing designer, Shelby Martin, who used to work with us full time. Um, and is has since moved on to to less beer soaked pastures, and she created this book based on the logos of many of our partners that we work with. Um, those partners include some folks you've had on the show already, including Scott Brewing um, and Riverbend Malt House, and maybe I don't know if you've had Root Shoot Malting on on the show, Jimmy, but they're another malt house in Colorado who we love. Um, we also, I'll give some other shouts to some folks who are included in this year's book, including Bootstrap Brewing, Brews Beers, the Craft Maltsters Guild, who I know you know, Elevation Beer Company, Goat Patch Brewing Company, Lone Tree Brewing Company, who was on the show last week. Um, we actually have 32 companies that got involved in this, what is now the second year of this coloring book. And we had everybody vote on a nonprofit organization that they thought would be relevant to our work that we're doing. And we ended up deciding upon the James Beard Foundation. And I was so glad that we did because the beer community can sometimes get a little pigeonholed with just the beverage. But when we're talking about craft beverage and small batch brands, we have to give a lot of small independent restaurants credit for allowing space for small breweries and distilleries who might not otherwise be able to get the shelf space or the serving space at, at bigger entities. And so I'm, I'm a huge advocate around the way that independent restaurants and independent breweries can help each other out. And so choosing the James Beard Foundation to be the recipient of all of the proceeds from this book was very exciting for me. Wow. That, that's a great intro. And just so you know, on your Instagram at Radcraft Beer, 
I did just order it. I ordered um, for $25 this fancy coloring book. So looking forward to it. I saw your order come in. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's I, I got to put, put my money, my, my little money where, where my mouth is. So, you know, um, but hey, I'm going to take a short break. We're going to be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. It's the final stretch of 2022, and HRN needs your help. Our goal for the winter membership drive is to raise $30,000. Become an HRN member with a donation of any amount at heritageradionetwork.org donate. Through creative, educational reporting, storytelling, and live events, HRN delivers thought-provoking exchanges about the real issues affecting our global food system. Your donation also supports our internship program, an essential part of HRN's work that educates the next generation of journalists. Donate at the $90 level before December 31st, and you'll receive a limited-release HRN t-shirt designed exclusively for HRN members by artist Chema Scandal. When you become an HRN member at any level, you'll be the first to know about special events, and get news updates created only for Food Radio Insiders. Help us meet our end-of-year fundraising goal with your tax-deductible donation. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate and become a member today. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host. Heritageradionetwork.org. Support us. Become a member. Uh, if you join... A $90 rate, you can get a special T-shirt, which we're going to tell you a little more about. Um, and uh, Heritage Radio Network, Winter Membership Drive, we'll be talking about that a little later. So we're talking right now about the Western Slope, uh, a little history of, of, of Denver, and now um, Dolores and Durango and uh, the Radcraft Beer Cruise. So um, back to Mark. Mark, um, you know, we talked a little bit about your time in Denver and your, the early years brewing in the 90s. Um, in you know, you said that Denver w- was really just getting started back then. Um, jumping ahead, what brought you out to Dolores, to the Western Slope? Um, tell us about that that part of Colorado and, you know, what what was it that attracted you there? Thanks, Jimmy. I, I think uh, there were a lot of reasons that I made a move to the Western Slope. Um, I was living in Boulder at the time. I had my first uh, child. Actually, my wife was quite uh, honestly mostly responsible for that, although I did contribute. <laughs> um, and Boulder was a really odd place uh, at that time. It, it started uh, when I first moved there, and my, my memory of Boulder was that it was a very athletic town, um, and it was a very entrepreneurial town. Um, we had colleagues, you know, in, in terms of like the first soy food products with White Wave was out there. And, uh, of course, Celestial Seasonings was a, a huge deal um, with uh, their tea company. Boulder Beer started in 1978. Um, and there were a lot of great companies that, that were born in Boulder. It was very vibrant, both athletically and entrepreneurially. Um, and there was a shift going on. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. But I found myself attracted to uh, a little more wide open spaces. Um, I could put that in conjunction with the fact that I was traveling a lot. I was learning a lot with Rock Bottom, which was keeping me both um, excited and uh, and motivated. But at some point, um, I was learning things I really didn't have any interest in learning. And so uh, the move to the Western Slope was really a way for me to begin uh, my severance from rock bottom and from the brewing industry in that way and create something that uh, had a little more of my own personal character to it. Uh, and so that's what, that's what facilitated the move. Uh, I, why I picked the four corners region um, it's 400 miles away from Denver and I still wanted to live in Colorado. So I'm about as far away from Denver as possible. And still in the state. That's great to know. So that's called Four Corners out there. Um, I, I'm picturing it. I'm, I'm, I'm. It's the Four Corners area. It's you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm picturing the things like there might be cider growing there. There might be uh, some kind of chili peppers. Um, what, what else? What else is the character of that region for you? 
So if you if you've heard of um, national parks, wide open spaces, uh, Mesa Verde National Park is is here. Uh, Canyon of the Ancients, Bears Ears, some of the things that have been in the news that maybe your listeners will have heard of. A lot of those things are in this area, the San Juan Mountains. Um, so there are a tremendous amount of natural uh, wide open spaces here, whether you're looking for 14,000 foot peaks or Red Rock Canyons. Um, you know, I can get to the Grand Canyon in two hours I, or three and a half, I guess. I can get to uh, Moab in two hours and all the Red Rock Deserts, the Colorado River, et cetera. So um, it's it's a vastly uh, interesting place. The, uh, the For me, it was the natural setting and the ability to be um, surrounded by nature and in nature that drew me to this location. It just seemed like a great place, uh, the kind of place I wanted to raise my kids. So let's, since you worked, you know, you, you were getting big. <laughs> And then um, you came into Dolores. What were the first steps you took when, when you were opening Dolores River Brewing? And how did it start out? Well, I think one of the, the things that appealed to me was it was going back a little bit to my roots. Uh, things uh, in the brew pub industry and the microbrewery industry were really heating up. Um, some of your listeners may remember the first kind of crash of the craft brewing movement in the late 90s uh, when a lot of people jumped into craft brewing without really any idea what the heck they were doing. And um, a lot of the concepts were either half-baked or um, unorganized or underfunded. And a lot of the product was uh, of poor quality and, and uh a lot of the a lot of the industry kind of went through a crash cycle. A lot of the um, manufacturers of the equipment had a real really struggled to overcome that those years. But this uh, movement down to Dolores gave me the opportunity to go back to my roots, which was really a place where I could not only educate people about beer um, and the the possibility that there could be something other than Budweiser or Coors. Um, as well as uh, in the area, there was uh, you know a real rural sensibility. Um, people think differently in rural setting than they do in an urban urban setting, um, and it was a, a real way for me to um, facilitate an experience uh, in Dolores that um, that would bring more people together. Um, and it's it's really been uh, kind of the driving passion of of the business. Uh, from day one, I think that's uh, something that Emily and I have in common is um, understanding uh, a way in which connecting people is far more profound and has longer term impacts um, than some of the previous uh, or more shallow marketing techniques. Um, I was especially excited about her coloring book because uh, that that really speaks to uh, creating connection for me. We don't we don't have TVs. We don't uh, we don't uh, have any kind of uh, we we don't like to have the kind of distractions that um, take people out of connection with each other. We like to inspire conversation, and uh, coloring is one of those activities people can do together and be in connection with each other. And uh, I'm actually coloring right now. I'm I love to hear that. That's so great. The the coloring books that we printed that have these really groovy perforated pages so you can pull them out and give them to a friend just arrived at the office about 20 minutes before we got on this podcast. So I'm I'm also looking at coloring pages um, while we talk today. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, it, do you have to use crayons or could I use colored pencils or watercolor? Anything you like. I recommend colored pencils. <laughs> there's no rules. Yeah, there's no, no rules here. You can color outside the lines if you want. Um, but the books that we printed, I'd say would be the best medium or the best, um, they'd be a good medium for colored pencil or crayon. But if you really wanted to paint these, I I think you could give it a try. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've seen the coloring books as, as marketing. So I guess we can talk about beer marketing. It's pretty neat. Uh, I know uh, right now I'm up north of Boston area, Massachusetts, where there's you know legal cannabis 
And uh, there's there's a couple really top retail shops here that have the, that had their own coloring books for a while. So, um, it, 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 what about that? I mean, I, I don't have to explain it, but it it works, right? It's kind of cool, and uh, I, I've always got it in my hands. I'm never going anywhere without my coloring book now. <laughs> I love hearing that. Yeah, you know, I was surprised that the coloring book was so well received among our industry relief group. But I guess that I shouldn't have been because it's just this really great activity. It's it's a creative outlet. It's stimulating, but it's also nervous system calming. And um, because I'm a nerd about this topic, I've actually looked into studies that show that coloring actually does calm your nervous system or your parasympathetic nervous system. So I'm I'm not surprised. I guess I shouldn't be surprised that so many people have interest in it. And then on top of that, it's visual. And I know I'm preaching to the choir when I say that marketing is so very visual and the opportunity to put your logo out there in a creative format like this, I think is, is another layer on the, the marketing cake that we've got going on here. Oh yeah, and I'm actually I'm I'm a doodler. Literally, listeners, every show I've done, I'm always doodling on my paper. <laughs> and uh, next show, I'm going to use the Radcraft coloring book and get some color involved. Um, hey, I want I want to go back to Mark. Mark, let let's get you talking more about Dolores and this community. Um, what's it like going into Dolores River Brewing? Is it a brew pub? You know, you talked about your 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 earlier roots. It is a brew pub. Um, so the idea, uh, again, um, there's a piece of it that is all about the beer side of things, but in in terms of what it's like there, uh, ultimately I wanted it to be inviting. I wanted to be comfortable in a place where, uh, you could meet new friends, um, or old ones. Uh, the notion of opening the pub was to create a community gathering place where people who lived in the community, worked in the community could come and gather and exchange ideas, get to know each other, uh, have interesting conversations, um, ask powerful questions of each other and kind of open up uh, to uh, discovering how our similarities are, are more predominant than our differences. Uh, I, philosophically, I, I use something that um, if it, that my mission would point to, that my vision would point to. I call it my North Star, and my North Star is uh, to heal the planet. And so the the way in which I set my business up, and every decision that I take, and every person I hire, and every uh, kind of beer I brew is in alignment with the notion of how does this contribute to healing the planet. And my idea is that people in connection uh, are powerful and people uh, disconnected from each other are destructive. Um, so if I can create a way in which people can come together and be in connection and make connections with each other, then um, anything is possible. And that is the way I can contribute to healing the planet. So Again, going back to the M's coloring book, it was just a perfect fit. It's totally in alignment with the notion that when we're coloring, we're reaching into a more innocent place in ourselves. We're reaching into a past uh, experience where um, people had more in common. When we're very young, we don't notice our differences as much uh, as when we're older, we start to label and discern differences between every one of us. And so this was an opportunity to. Um, pay homage to that and come back to this this notion that um, in this place we can be in connection we can be uh, enjoying each other's uh, company and and being creative together it's also something I hold in uh, high value is creativity so the brewery is really an outlet for um, for a cre creative uh, people and creative ideas to come to the surface. The beers I brew are um, well-balanced, I would say. They do 
traditionally go back to maybe some world world styles. Uh, I, I feel like my beer is a facilitator of an experience, that experience being um, people gathering and being in connection. The beer is not supposed to be the experience. Um, and so although we like to do a little bit of barrel aging here and there and um, a lot of different yeast strains, other different styles, predominantly the beer is there to act as a social lubricant and to open people up to, uh, to deeper conversations and grander ideas. So what, what I'm going to go in this afternoon with my coloring book. <laughs> and What's a beer that I should have right now? Because I'm really thirsty. Right now, what I'm drinking is our Mono Brow. It's a Mertzen. Um, it's, it's reminiscent of, I would say, Polaner Oktoberfest, perhaps. It's a little less sweet in the tooth, but I prefer a little bit drier beer. Um, but it's, it's deliciously malty in a drier malty kind of sense, a little bit of a roasty character, uh, definitely an old world lager style. Um, and if you're a little uh, drawn a little more into uh, the hoppy side of things, I would uh, probably venture over to Snaggletooth, which is our pale ale. Um, our most popular beer named after a class four or five rapid on the Dolores River here that is uh, humbled many uh, boatmen. Snaggletooth, wow. And then with your lager, uh, uh, any brewing technique? Are you doing anything decoction? We don't have the ability to do decoction in our simple uh, infusion setup, but I do a step infusion mash. Um, we do cool the work down as low as we can go, or we, we generally pitch our lager yeast around 46 to 48 degrees um, and ferment there very cold. So it's uh, at the earliest stages, it's a 30 to 40 day beer, but um, we are brewing when on in such a small capacity with such a small audience that um that beer will will taste its best to me right around 60 days that sounds really great i tell you uh em, once again you're making me want to go out to colorado and uh that's the goal hit this western slope area you know it and we will make it out there um I'm just going to give a quick shout out again to the Craft Mall Conference coming up March 16th to 18th in Portland, Maine. And since you mentioned uh, your Martson, Monobrow Martson, I'm going to mention Exhibit A, which is one of my favorite New England, uh, mostly Craft Mall brewers. Um, I have their Focal Point, which is their Martson also, and a big shout out to Matt, um, who, who brews that. So you guys are great. We could talk all night. And... Um, I just want to say thank you guys so much for taking the time to join me here on Heritage Radio Network. A big thank you to Armin Spengen, our engineer. Uh, thanks to Mark and M. I'm Jimmy Carboni, and we'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.